Well, let's open up the word of the Lord one more time to the epistle of James and find chapter 1 this morning, verses 17 and 18. As we open this section of James, we come to a, a new part of the letter, a new section. But while it's new, it is very much linked to everything that James has said previously. We've seen, as James has talked very bluntly, about the source of temptation and sin. And that might dismay us, it might astonish us in some ways. Maybe you're repulsed by hearing the news that the source of temptation, the source of evil is the human heart, your heart and my heart. And we've listened as James has talked very candidly about the reality of temptation and how our desires, the desires we have, the corrupted desires that we have in our souls inevitably lead us astray and there's a downward trajectory, isn't there? And we see that as James describes this death spiral. Desire, he says, gives birth to sin, and sin matures and becomes fully grown, and then it brings forth death, as James says in verse 15. And the picture, to be honest with you, the picture that James has painted so far is very bleak indeed. Maybe you left last Sunday a bit dismayed and a bit downcast. If our hearts are already polluted from the womb... If our cravings and desires are aligned against God, hostile to the reign of our Creator, what are we to do? For James has said that the desires of humanity after the fall are always seeking an autonomous fulfillment and expression. Our desires want to be out from under the reign of the Creator. He gave us those desires to bring glory to Him, to use in His service, but since the fall... Our desires have functioned autonomously, that is, serving their own agenda, wanting to express themselves without any reservation or restriction, wanting fulfillment in a very selfish way. And this is the battle that all men face. We are profoundly broken. This is the word of Scripture. And we remember that when James utters these bleak words, when he draws this rather dark picture, he is is talking to the church. He is talking to his brothers, those who profess faith in Christ. And so what he says is, is for us. So what do we do? Where is our hope? We all struggle. We all have doubts. We all fight temptation. We all lose those battles sometimes. And if we're so corrupted, if we're still infected with the poison of original sin, what can we do? Where is the hope? Where do we turn for good news? Well, we come to this new section of James, chapter 1, and there is good news. There is really good news. And James is going to direct our minds away from ourselves, away from that interior picture that's so disturbing. He's going to lift our eyes upward. And we need to follow him. We need to do what the brother of Jesus is telling us to do this morning. We need to look through the ceiling, as it were, and get our eyes off ourself. Because what we see when we look at ourselves is not a very pretty picture. We need to get our eyes off ourselves and look above. And so let's listen to what he says, James 1, 17. Let's, Let's get a different perspective. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And that is the blessed word of the Lord. And now may he send his spirit to quicken and to teach us his glorious truths. What is the way out of our dilemma? Where is the hope in our battles, our persistent battles with temptation? James says in verse 17, consider your father. Consider your father. As you read the letter of James, and I hope you have, in fact, I would encourage you through the course of this sermon series on James that you would read those five chapters over and over again. And if you do, you're going to discover that James loves nature. He loved it. Scattered throughout his little epistle are references to the human body and various bodily parts and functions and to flowers and fruits and vegetables and seasons and and animals. It seems that James was captivated by the world that God had created. And so in verse 17, he, he says, let's consider the world, the universe, and let's consider the one who created it. Let's let our eyes be lifted upward because James knows that if a believer, if a believer lifts his eyes upward, when he takes his eyes or her eyes off of all the circumstances and the problems and the vast complexities of life, that we will intuitively and immediately become aware of his power. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and look at the word above. We need to look far above ourselves into the heavens. As one says, we should always be pondering the work of creator. We must consider creation and creation's maker. Now notice that James speaks of our father as the father of lights. One commentator has said that as James saw the sun and the moon and the stars, they led him to something still more to see, the fatherly creator himself. That's what happens when we look above. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, The heavens, the starry sky declares the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's what happens to you and me when we look into the sky. We see our Father's handiwork. And notice that James has an interesting name for our Creator. The Father of Lights. The Father of Lights. What an interesting name that is for God. Why would he call God the Father of Lights? Well, there may be several reasons for that. One might be simply the fact that, that he is the source of those lights. The sky at night is full of lights. And, and James is thinking about the fact that the maker of those lights is the God of the Bible. He made the stars, he made the galaxies and the heavenly bodies and the entirety of space. And everything that space contains was brought into existence by his unfailing word. He simply spoke it. Once there was nothing, and then he said, let there be light. And there was. He breathed out his effectual word, and out of nothing, all that exists came into being. And so in that sense, he is the father of lights. 
But look at the deeper lesson. He is the Father. Because James could have well written the creator of lights. But he uses the word Father of lights. The creator is Father. And that little distinction, maybe that washed over you very quickly and you didn't think about it, but that, that, that distinction separates Christianity from every other world religion there is. We don't simply have a creator. We have a father. We have a father. He is our father. And that's a simple truth, but it is not trivial at all. In other words, James is saying we don't simply have a great power source or a disconnected deity like in deism that just creates the world and steps away from it. We have a father. He is a person. A person. He is related to us. He has given us his love. He has immersed us in his grace. He has revealed himself to us as father. I mean, we didn't think of this. We didn't ascribe this name Father to God. He gave us that name for himself. That's the name by which he has revealed himself to us. And there are some implications to this. There are some profound implications to the fatherhood of God. Let me just mention three real quickly. Number one embedded in this notion that God is the Father of lights is the fact that He loves us. This person, God the Father, loves us. And so James is saying that despite the fact that we are tried and tested and we're battling temptation and our corrupted desires are always conspiring against us to lead us astray, despite all of that, the Father loves us. How could He be a Father if He didn't love us? And so he loves us. His disposition towards us is always one of infinite love. If you belong to Christ, you have a father. And his mood, his attitude, his posture, his disposition toward you is always, always and forever one of infinite love. Think about something that Jesus said in John 14, that beloved 14th chapter of John's gospel that we love so well. If anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word. That is, Jesus is speaking to the redeemed. I could paraphrase that without doing any damage to what Jesus means. Jesus is speaking to those who know him as Lord who have turned from their sins and called him Lord and Savior. And Jesus says, my Father will love you. My Father loves you. And we will come to that sinner. We will come to him and make our abode with him. And then in John 15, the very next chapter, the Lord says this. Oh, think of these words. Let these be written in your mind's eye, in, indelibly so, Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And you see the connection between the Father 
and the Father's love and the Father's people. Then the Apostle Paul makes it so clear. He says in 2 Thessalonians, we have God as our Father and He has loved us. He has given us eternal comfort and good hope by His grace. Again, the connection, we have God as our Father and He has loved us. And this is all in the mind of James, the brother of Jesus, as he writes these very encouraging words. Then we think of the Apostle John, the one who wrote the words that Jesus spoke in 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we could be called and should be called the children of God, for such we are. So James wants you to see that you have a Father who loves you. And though you're being tested, though your faith is being proven, though temptation is crashing against the shores of your lives, though there are many desires wrestling for control, your Father loves you. He loves you. He doesn't love the mountains He made. As beautiful as they are. He doesn't love the insects that he made, as incredibly beautiful and complex as they are. He doesn't love the animals uh, in the way he loves you and in the way he loves me. We are made in his image and likeness. We, the church, are his beloved elect. He has placed his saving love upon us, incomprehensible as it is, but he's placed his saving love on us. And that's why Paul says the love of God surpasses knowledge. It is beyond our rational understanding. It is beyond our comprehension. It far exceeds all human categories and descriptions. You can't analyze the Father's love in a lab. It just is. He loves you. He loves you. And so in the midst of your many struggles, even in the midst of your doubts and your fears and your anxieties and your battles and your temptations, the love the Father has for you is not mitigated or diminished even in the slightest. He loves you perfectly and totally. And that's all he can do for you is love you and that's all you need. But there's a second implication to this wonderful name for God, Father of Lights. Not only does He love us, but He's always with us. He is with us. You know about the divine attributes. We could talk about those omni-attributes, omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Omniscience. He knows everything. And then there's that other omni-attribute, omnipresence. And we need to think about that. Our God, the creator of all that we see around us, our God is everywhere present. And that means more than you think it means. It means that the totality of his being is present in every fraction of space at the same time. Now, some of you rocket scientists can go home and talk about that at lunch. And if you get it figured out, you call me. The entire being of God is present in every fraction of space simultaneously. And that just simply means He is with us. For what father would not be with his children? What father 
does not crave, literally crave, to be with his children or grandchildren. He would not be our father if he were not always with us. He will never leave us alone. Not a moment, not the slightest portion of time. We are never alone. We are never out of his presence. We're never out from under his loving gaze. We are never out from under the shadow of his wings. Now, sometimes our emotions want to mislead us. We do feel abandoned by God. We do feel forgotten by God. But that's simply emotion talking. That is not truth talking. Our finite minds and our flawed emotions often mislead us, but on the authority of the unfailing word of God, I'm here to tell you, your father never leaves you. You are never alone. I know you don't believe everything I say, so let me quote the word of God for you. Psalm 139. O Lord... You've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Do you see the point? Our Father will never leave us alone to face the trials and temptations that come our way. He will never leave our side. He will never cast us out into the world to see if we could make it for ourselves. The last several weeks in our front yard, my study, my study is facing the front yard and my reading chair is there by the window and I've looked out the window the last several weeks and I've watched the drama playing out. There's some bluebirds. Now I'm not a birdologist so I don't know exactly what kind of bluebirds they are but there's some bluebirds and there's a mama and a daddy and there are two babies and the little babies got kicked out of the nest and they landed by my window and they found a place to rest on a big bush right in front of my reading chair through the window. And I've watched them. The parents are close, but all they can do is watch. And the little birds try to fly, and they fall off the bush and crash. And they climb back up, and they fall off the bush and crash. And I watch as days go by, and the parents can do nothing but look from a distance. And by the end of a couple of weeks, there is one lying on the ground dead, and one that flew off. And those parents could do nothing but stand on the sideline and cheer. They were helpless. They kicked them out of the nest, and they sent them away with the hope that somehow they would survive and become full-grown birds. Now, that's the way it works in nature. But this is not what God does. That's how it is in the animal kingdom. That's not the way it is with God's elect. 
He doesn't throw you out of the nest and say, okay, fly. He doesn't toss you into the river and the currents swarm around you and he just says, good luck. Swim hard. Keep your head above the waves. He loves you and he is with you. And he will never leave you alone. And he sends his spirit not only to inhabit you, but to support you. You are never alone. The omnipresent God is your father. And you can never legitimately say, I have no one with me. For he said, I am with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. And then there's a third implication of the fatherhood of God as James works this out in this simple passage. Our God is wisely directing the course of our lives. Now again, our, our, our eyes are looking upward into the heavens. And we're going to see that in a moment. But as we look up into the heavens, we get an understanding of how wise and powerful and how much in control God is of creation. Go outside and look into the heavens. What do you see? Well, these days, we can see a lot more than James could see. There have been many advances in technology, and, and, and astronomers now can, can, can train their telescopes, both optical and, and radio telescopes, and they can probe the edges of the universe. And with the instruments at their disposal, they can calculate, now watch this, they can calculate the approximate number of stars in the heavens. And the number, the conservative number, the low-end number, is something like a 1 followed by 24 zeros. That's how many stars there are. There are about 10 trillion galaxies. And every one of those created, named by God, put in place, and governed by the Father... Not one of those stars, not one of those galaxies has been randomly situated. They're all moving in perfect agreement according to the eternal plan of God. And you thought, you thought your new car was complicated. You thought your new phone was complicated. You thought the space shuttle was complicated. I would submit to you there's nothing as complicated and complex as space. Can you imagine that many moving parts and yet functioning in perfect harmony? Our Father has no trouble governing all of that. Every planet and star and galaxy and comet and pulsar and quasar and cosmic cloud of dust, all of it, every asteroid, every little fraction of anything is where it should be under the sovereign reign of our Father. What a thought! I am absolutely not worried about an asteroid conking me on the head. Not one thing will fall from the sky apart from the will of the Father. It is not out of control. It is not subject to random forces somehow divorced from God. God is the source of all things and He is the sovereign Lord of creation. He can handle that. He can handle it. 
And then think about the smaller scale of creation. Think about the little atoms. How many atoms are there in the universe? Conservative estimates are that there are 10 to the 82nd power atoms in the universe. Now, I, I didn't pass math, so I don't know what that means. It just sounds awful big. And again, each atom and each molecule, each subatomic particle functioning properly, orbiting what it should orbit, composed of what it should be composed of, and even down to the quantum scale, God is Lord, our Father is King. Now, do you think think you've got problems that he can't handle? These staggering numbers should drive us to the conclusion that God is fully able to govern our lives, even when our lives look chaotic. He is in control. He is never caught off guard. He is never surprised by what happens in the world or in our own lives. He never wakes up and reads the paper and says, what am I going to do? He is never overwhelmed. He is never shocked by anything. He is never at a loss as to what to do. He is fully in charge of all things. The sky above, the mysteries below, and your life. You have a father. He knows what's going on. He loves you. And he is with you. And all of that, James, I think has packed into this beautiful name for God, the Father, the Father of lights. And doesn't that put a different perspective on our sufferings, on our trials, on our temptations and adversities? He he is our Father. He loves us. He is with us. And He is in charge. And there's nothing to worry about. From this point on in the text, James starts talking about the character of our Father. And this is so good. If I could just beam myself into next week, I would. Because we're going to be talking about this, Lord willing, next week. The character of our Father. But but I I can't quit until we look at just a little bit of this. The character of this father. There are some things about him. There are two big things about him James speaks of here that we want to consider. And we're just going to hit one of those this morning. But what kind of a father? Well, look at this in verse 17. He is a giver of gifts. This great father who is with us, who loves us, and who is in charge, gives only Good gifts. In verse 17, James says, Every good, and your translation might read thing, every good thing or every good gift, and then in every perfect gift. So in some translations, the word gift is used twice. In the first instance, James is talking about the act of giving, and in the second instance, the thing given. The point is being made that our Father, who loves us, who is with us, who is in charge, He loves to give, and He loves to give good things. Good things. And you can see how important this is, because he's, He said in verse thing, uh, rather verse 13, that, that He doesn't tempt anyone. He, he doesn't do that. 
He is not the giver of evil. He is not the source of evil. He doesn't tempt us. But on the positive side, he is the giver of good things. Our Lord, our Father, is the creator of good. We have a good Father. He is the ultimate fountain of good. He is the ultimate standard of all goodness. His holy nature radiates with great luminosity. It radiates goodness. You don't believe me? In Exodus 33, Moses, Moses prayed this prayer, Lord, show me your glory. And this is what came from heaven in reply. The Lord said to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Isn't that something? The Lord is a glow. Our Father is a glow with radiant goodness. We have a good Father. I mean, not just a Father, but a good Father. David The psalmist said, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. Psalm 34, we love to quote this at the communion table. Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The 86th Psalm, verse 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And that's what's being claimed here. Our Father is good. No such category of good would exist if it were not for the existence of our triune God. We only know what good is because we have a Creator who is good. The God who made us and who redeemed us, who is with us now, is perfectly good. We have a Father who is the fountain of all goodness. And you are loved and you belong to and you are led by and you are sustained by and governed by a Father who is good. Now, why aren't you saying amen to that? We're going to think you're a bunch of Presbyterians. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Incredible news, our Father is good. He is good. Think about this. He can be nothing but good to you. It's been well said that nothing good, rather, nothing except good comes from God and nothing but good comes from God to those who love Him. Do you think this is what Joseph was thinking about? His brothers, remember in the Old Testament, sold him into slavery. They betrayed him. They threw him down in a dungeon, and he didn't die. He lived, and so they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And lo and behold, by the providence of God, he he is second in command of Egypt. And his brothers, again, by the providence of God, show up to buy grain. They don't know that this is Joseph in charge of all of Pharaoh's grain. And Joseph and his brothers meet face to face, and his brothers realize who he is. And they say, oh my, he's going to kill us for what we did to him. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God, God, my father, meant it for what? Say the word, good. 
He can only be good to you. And look at what he says. James says, look above to the Father of lights for coming down, coming down as if there's a continual flow of good gifts coming down. He doesn't just give a gift on Christmas or on birthdays. He is always continually, unfailingly giving love, showering good blessings on his children. And they are perfect. Notice the word perfect. Everything he gives is perfect. That is, it is appropriate to what is required. It always fits our needs exactly. Everything we need, as one scholar says, has been fully underwritten by his endless and exactly appropriate gifts. He never gives you another tie for Christmas. You ever gotten one of those? You don't need it. You got 500 you don't even wear. And somebody gave you another tie or a pair of socks and you smile with a wooden smile and say thank you. Because the gift wasn't perfect, it wasn't timely, it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't needed, but God doesn't give ties. Everything he gives is perfectly timed, perfectly designed and given with love. And you need to know that when you're suffering he is good, and he gives good when it's raining and storming. He is good, and he gives good when you are being tempted and when you are being tried. He is good, and he gives nothing but good to his people when they suffer, when they fail. When some besetting sin has run us over and flattened us in the road like a mat truck, he is good to us. He's good when we're perplexed when we're defeated, when we're not winning. He is good. He is good. The psalmist in that beautiful 34th chapter gives this promise that's so appropriate. But they who seek the Lord will not be in any want of any good thing. Ever. If you're suffering, he is being good to you. If you're being tempted, he is good. That's the point. There's the hope. You have a father. He loves you. He's with you. He's in control. And he always is showering you with good gifts. You have a father. A good father. As I've often said, I wouldn't be much of a Reformed preacher if now and again I didn't quote John Calvin. So my obligatory Calvin quote is appropriate here this morning. In his commentary on James, he, he gives us some help with the practical application of this one blessed truth that we have a Father who is good. And it is this. Calvin writes... We ought to be so affected by God's innumerable blessings, which we daily receive from his hand, as to think of nothing but his glory. And we should abhor whatever comes to mind or is suggested by others which is not compatible with his praise. 
May we look ahead. May we look up. May we live to glorify the maker of the stars, our Father. May we see His glory as the reason for our existence. May we flee all evil so that His name might be praised. Do do you see how this promise just fuels worship and holiness? That's Calvin's point. This is the application. I have a Father, and I am here to bring Him glory. I have a Father, a good Father, and I will bring Him glory as I flee evil, as I abhor what is evil and cling to what is good and serve Him in the power of His Spirit. There's your hope. There's your hope. You have a Father, a good Father. Praise his name. Let us come to his table. Let us give him thanks. Let us confess our sins and ask him to increase our love for him, his kingdom, and his people.